Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 10. Tori Bruno, the CEO of United Launch Alliance, drops by to talk STEM, history, and more. I'm John Mulnix, and I'm your podcast host and a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me here on this podcast and on my other podcast, The Space Shot. Tori was gracious enough to take the time to chat with all of us for this podcast, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation, so without any further delay, let's dive right in. Today I'm speaking with Tori Bruno, the CEO of the United Launch Alliance. Tori has been in that posi- position since 2014, and you actually just celebrated the anniversary just a couple days ago, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Tori, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to be here, John. We're, we're glad to have you. So let's start off with some history on both you personally and also ULA. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the United Launch Alliance and how you got to your current position? Sure. So ULA was formed in 2006. It's a joint venture, standalone company, and we design, build, and fly space launch vehicles. It was owned, it is owned half and half by Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And they are the parties that, of course, set up the joint venture and everybody stopped working for those companies, were rehired by the new company, any inventory was transferred over the factory, and now it's all standalone and autonomous. Okay. So we're in our, you know, whatever that works out to be, this is 2018, 2006, so 12th year, and we have flown 129 times, all successfully. That's me knocking on wood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is good. Hey, and that's, you know, you, after each mission, you tweet, you know, the, the mission number, which I always enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because ULA was basically born from two different parent companies, you're in a unique position as the CEO of a company that's now launched missions to pretty much every destination in our solar system. That has to be pretty awesome when you think about it. It is. It's. I mean, it's awe-inspiring, the work that we get to do, not just for you know national security, but also for science, which you just talked about. And man, there's just, I mean, there's nothing like launching these rockets and then knowing that the mission is going to make a difference either in people's lives or in our fundamental understanding of our place in the universe. It's the coolest job ever. I couldn't agree more. So, you know, Obviously, I think you're a little bit of both a space nerd and a businessman, and we we mean space nerd in the most loving way possible. Um, how do you see yourself? Oh, I'm a space nerd. I mean, I you know I came to this business to build rockets. I've been building rockets my entire life. Um, I uh, I just really never wanted to do anything but be a rocket scientist. I had no interest in management when I first started working. And that's all I did for the first 10 years. And then I sort of finally reluctantly, you know, went into leadership. And then, you know, this is what happened. And you're having fun. <laughs> I'm still having fun. That's good. That's what matters. Mm-hmm. So you've got an engineering background then, obviously. I do. Let's talk a little bit about that because there's a lot of students that listen to this podcast. Sure. And, you know, for them it's kind of easy to get lost in the weeds of going from semester to semester. Talk a little bit about your experience with engineering. 
Sure. So I am an engineer. I, I have an engineering degree from Cal Poly out in California. Uh, I went to work for Lockheed when I was still a student as a summer intern. And I spent 30 years at Lockheed Martin before I came here to ULA. I've done rockets the entire time. I've probably done three dozen different systems, which is very rare in our business. Most people get to work on one or two, maybe three rockets. I've done literally dozens and everything from missiles to interceptors to space launch vehicles, hypersonics, little dash of directed energy, which are is a fancy way of saying lasers. Very cool. And just had a really, really broad and, and uh, you know varied background. I've had a wonderful, wonderful time doing it. Yeah. What I would advice I would give students is you need to have a certain amount of tenacity. Engineering school's tough if you're going the engineering route, if you're gonna be in STEM. It is different than your experience as an engineer or as a working rocket scientist. And so in those moments when you're being discouraged because your entire academic experience is based on just giving you the tools that you'll use later, everyone has a class or two that are just really, really hard. Remember that this is different than what it'll be like when you're actually working it'll be much closer to your passion for space or your passion for rocketry or whatever stem application you go into very different from school don't be discouraged if you have an opportunity to do an internship by all means do it because then you'll get to see what it's really like and you know hang in there for sure. Keep your eye on the ball, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> so your STEM, your STEM background, mm-hmm. just because, you know, STEM, engineer, STEM and now STEAM are really a lot of, you see a lot of people talking about those, writing about those online. Yeah. How did an engineering background prepare you not only for life, but also for management? Oh, sure. Well, one of the things that you get from your engineering education in your engineering work experience is a different way of thinking. Um, you, it's You're not just sort of a weird and quirky you know, STEM nerd, but you're, you're also <laughs> trained to be a problem solver mm-hmm. and to be data-driven and analytical in your approaches to things. And of course, when you work in the aerospace industry, especially space, you develop uh, a very clear systems engineering approach to doing that problem solving. And I have found that, you know, it it affects my entire life, the way I think about everything either at work or out of work. Uh, of course, it, uh, it's probably also influenced by the fact that my whole family, we're all, we're all engineers. My wife is also a rocket scientist. She worked on rockets and hypersonics for a number of years. My daughter just graduated from RPI with uh, dual majors, electrical and mechanical engineering. Oh, wow. And my son is going to graduate soon with his degree. Very nerdy at the Bruno household. That's good. Around Thanksgiving when everybody's home. But setting aside that weird aberration, yeah, it does, uh, it does change the way you look at the world. And I, I think it helps you sort of be more logical and in some cases less um, – maybe less emotional when you have challenges. You yeah. Know, you, you fixate on how to get through it and how to fix it. You know, and that's that's a great way to have an outlook on life is you know being able to work through a problem. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that the whole the whole household is <laughs> into STEM education um, because that's something that's important to the cosmosphere and also to you personally, obviously, and 
and the United Launch Alliance. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the education programs that ULA has for students of all ages? Yeah, sure. So we do a number of things. We're, in, you know, we encourage our employees to be out in our community, contributing in the classrooms whenever possible. We have a great program for our interns, our potential rocket scientists who would work here. So I do do internships. We do paid internships. Okay. I'm a strong believer in that yeah. for two reasons. One, we actually put them to work. They're working people when they're here contributing. They, If they're engineers, they may have designs that are now flying on the rockets. If they're in communications, they have products that are out there online. Yeah. So they're doing real work. They ought to be paid for it. I put myself through college, and I would not have made it if my internship hadn't been paid for. Yeah. So I, I think that's pretty darned important. That intern program has within it kind of a neat thing that reaches into the community we call the intern rocket. Okay. And so every year, our interns, after work, really a volunteer basis, uh, get together and they build a giant sport rocket which we will launch, you know, before they go back to school. And the payloads on that rocket come from our sort of our sister company, if you will, or partner company, Ball Aerospace. They do spacecraft. Their interns come down here and they, you know, they integrate a uh, uh, primary payload, but then there can be as many as 30 more payloads and they hit K through 12. Wow. So we'll have everything from really amazingly talented high school kids who put together sensor packages or remote vehicles that'll land and do something to kindergarten kids with green army men on parachutes and it's just a great experience for everybody the families come out we launch the rocket and it's really cool that sounds like a lot of fun when's the next launch so it'll be next summer we just did we just did our intern rocket launch But if you want to come out, we'll make sure you get an invitation. That'd be great. That'd be great. So, you know, what what does a company like ULA gain from being this active in the community? Well, sure. A couple of things. First, you have a corporate responsibility. If you're in a community, you have a big footprint there, and you ought to be a responsible participant and member of that community. Long term, we intend to be here a long time. And... STEM is a very long pipeline. Yeah. Typically, studies show you need to inspire kids in grammar school if you're really going to pull them all the way through to the other end. And as we talked a few minutes ago about how school is so different from your, your living, you know, working life as a rocket scientist or as an engineer, the companies that participate in the community can bridge that gap for kids. They can get them inspired in STEM, what they would do with a STEM career, and help give them that fortitude to, you know, get through that STEM education, which is often pretty tough. Yeah. I was a political science major, so for me personally, my my math classes ended when George W. was president. (laughs) That's been a while for me. I've used more math in my new job in the last couple months than I have in about the last decade. So STEM is important. So everybody should, you know, keep at it if you if that's what your goal is. Well I'm glad you also brought that up because I don't want to only talk about STEM because a Mm -hmm. lot of people think you can't work in space or rocketry 
unless you have a STEM degree. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. It takes all kinds of skills and lots of different people with different backgrounds to make a company like this work mm-hmm. that all ultimately turns into a rocket and a yeah. mission to space. We have all sorts of people. We have political scientists on our staff. We have communicators. We have videographers. We have finance people with a business and accounting background. Uh, it's a big job in a big team to make one of these gigantic rockets happen. Yeah. Well, it's everything, you know, the, in the movie Apollo 13, they always, they talk about it's everybody from the janitor up to the astronaut, basically. And that really, from what I, my experience now in the industry is that is not an exaggeration. So I'm it's glad you mentioned that. It's completely true. So, you know, speaking from personal experience, the company that I now work for um, has a constant shortage of qualified machinists. So it's not just, you know, people that are going into school for a bachelor's in engineering. It's also people that are going through to a trade school. What would happen to the industry as a whole if the labor force for machinists or for trade school um, applicants were to dry up, what would happen to a company company like ULA? It would be over. It would dry up. So the amazing thing about space vehicles and space launch vehicles or rockets is that you have an interesting mix of skills that are required to build these rockets. On the one hand, there's very high-tech sort of manufacturing technologies that we're using like additive manufacturing and computer controlled machines where we need technicians that are very, very technically skilled and tech savvy. On the other hand, at the same time, a lot of the rocket is built by sort of hand craftsmanship. I think people imagine sometimes aerospace factories with a bunch of robots and not many people and it's just not like that. Yeah. It's all about these skilled craftsmen who are really dedicated to the mission and take enormous care in building these vehicles because they are pushing the bounds of physics. When we launch a rocket, there isn't a lot of margin, and especially on the rocket, which is even a little bit different than a spacecraft, there's almost no redundancy. Yeah. Everything has to work. We like, you know, we have a saying here where we'll have a group of people and we're talking about an issue and we're over maybe trivializing something and we might say, I might say, I do this often, well, you know, guys, how many how many parts does it take to build our Atlas rocket? And if they haven't been in this conversation with me before, they'll start guessing, well, I think it's like 150,000 on the bill of materials, or I think it's 125 parts and say, no, you know, it takes every darn one. And these technicians are the people who build those parts, put that rocket together, they put their heart and soul into it, and without them, we don't have a rocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's – it's easy to you know lose sight, I think, a lot of people, especially kids going into college nowadays, that they feel like they just have to go get a four-year degree. And you know, if that's not what they really want to do, there's avenues in aerospace. There's avenues in other manufacturing yeah. Um, pipelines that they would be able to do something incredible. Absolutely. You know, building a rocket for a person who truly wants to be a craftsman and is is all about making things with their hands or with their 
ability to operate these complex machines is a great career. It's a great job and they're vitally important. And you can really have, you know, a, a wonderful time in your work life doing that kind of work, contributing to these incredibly important missions. And they should not feel that they are forced to take another path if that's where their interest lies. I'm, gl- I'm glad that you feel that way as well, because that's something that, you know, for students, it's easy to get discouraged. So there's there's always avenues for them, no matter what they're going to pursue. So and this is something that I've asked people in all parts of the aerospace industry. And it's been kind of a variation on the same question. And you mentioned tenacity earlier. But besides being tenacious, what are some qualities that students should have? I mean, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I really want to follow up with this. Yeah, we well, have to have a passion and an idea about what you're going to do with these skills afterwards, because that's your compass. Academically, uh, time management is hugely important. And you have to, if not love every single one of your classes, you should like math and science, because you're going to be doing that for a number of years. And you ought to feel like you have some aptitude there. There's a little bit of a difference in you know, engineers and, you know, here are rocket scientists who are focused on applications versus people who are going to do basic, you know, research, for example, because engineers will think of things like math and the other classes they have as tools to go and accomplish this end, to build a spacecraft, to build a rocket, an airplane, or whatever. There are people who love just the beauty of math itself for math's sake and would be perfectly happy doing research and developing mathematical tools for other people, the applied people, it's a little bit different, right? It's just, it's for us, for an engineer, calculus is a wrench. You know, differential equations is a screwdriver. You know, I like my screwdriver, but what I really like is the thing I'm working on. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, well, as someone who doesn't know how to use either of those metaphorical wrenches or screwdrivers, I'm glad some people know how to use that. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, Tori, you're really active on Twitter, which is something that I'm really happy about. You engage with everybody from Astronaut Abbey to students around the world to even podcasters like me. I'm, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for that. But why, why do you do that? Why are you so active on Twitter? Well, it's really a personal thing. I feel that because space touches all our lives every single day, that there should be more awareness of that. And the industry that allows that to happen itself should be more accessible to people. And so it's a personal goal I have to improve that situation. And that's why I spend the time on social media. And when you see me out there, it's actually me. It's not, uh, you know, a professional communicator. It's not one of the staff. So if I say something uh, foolish, I'll I'll apologize in advance because you're just getting me. Well, I think that's really, you know, it's... It's nice to be able to break down that barrier to, you know, kind of come down from the ivory tower, as it were. And, you know, personally, I found Twitter to be an awesome forum for discussing space with people around the world. So I'm glad that you're active on it. Um, 
lately there's been a mission in the news, if people have been paying attention, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are paying attention to it. And that's the launch of the Parker Solar Probe. Um, this is the latest NASA spacecraft that's on a mission to study our sun, which is incredible. Um, it's not the first mission to study the sun, but it's the latest in a long series of yes. of programs essentially to study our sun. And it launched on a United Launch Alliance Delta IV heavy rocket. Can you talk a little bit about the process of integrating that payload with the rocket itself oh, and sure. the launch as well? Yeah. So... This is, of course, an amazing mission, which you've touched on, and a cool lift experience just for the rocket team. The integration for something like that starts a couple of years ago, really as much as three years ago, where the interface between the spacecraft and the rocket have to be understood in exactly what the spacecraft is going to need. And this mission in particular was extremely challenging. At the end of the day, the Delta IV Heavy was the only rocket that could actually accomplish this. And we customized the rocket for that spacecraft, incorporating a whole nother third upper stage with a solid rocket motor to give it just that extra bit of energy. So we start working with NASA, customizing the rocket for this mission, but also interacting with the spacecraft's designer, manufacturer, principal, investigator, working with the Applied Physics Lab, APL, to make sure we're not only working to the specification, because you can't write everything in the spec, but we also understand what's important and the other important considerations so that we get all of that factored in into how we put that custom rocket together. Eventually, the rocket is being built separately from the spacecraft. They come together at Florida at a facility where the spacecraft is finished up and fueled and gotten ready. We encapsulate it and then we bring it out and we put it on top of our gigantic rocket. And then we spend a little bit of time making sure everybody's healthy and everything looks like it's supposed to look. These interplanetary missions are a bit tricky because you'll have not just the day of launch, launch window, but a span of time, launch Mm -hmm. window. And if you miss it, you might have to wait a long time before you can go again. But by the same token, this is one instant in time where the spacecraft either gets to space or it's going to die in a giant ball of fire. So we're going to be really, really, really careful, and we're not going to take any chances, Mm -hmm. and we're going to use the time it takes to make it happen. So all of that's going on on the pad, and then finally, you know, we march down through that countdown, and, you know, we just, you know, blast a 30-story building into space with a tiny little spacecraft (laughs) on top of it, and off it goes. Yeah, for me, my first launch that I saw was Muos 5. Oh, um, and that was 5. And that was, I drove at the time I was living in Fargo, and I drove from Fargo to Titusville and stopped about five hours at a rest area to oh get there gosh. in time. And wow. that was, seeing it go off on time, was it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. So I'm, I'm glad to know that everybody is really working to make sure that happens. Yeah. Yeah, nothing trumps mission success here at at ULA. You know, there's a million things as you're rolling up on a mission that you have to consider schedule and cost and, and, you know, logistics of getting in and out. But at the end of every conversation, if there's a question about risking the mission, then none of that other stuff's important. Mm -hmm. Because it's, as the experience you had, it's just 
a one-time event. Yeah. You can't land the rocket if something's wrong and try again. You can't bring the spacecraft back. It has to work. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reset button. Right. One of the other things that I've noticed on this launch and then also others that the United Launch Alliance uh, does is that this rocket was dedicated to someone. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the history of dedicating launches? Yeah, we've done that pretty much the whole time. And it'll be sort of, you know, recognizing and really an homage to someone who was involved with the mission, who's generally not with us anymore, who made a really important contribution. The names often come from the rank and file where, you know, it might be a technician, it might be an engineer. In this particular case, it was a NASA person who, who's contribution was really fundamental and profound. This is the person who came up with the trajectory and the orbital mechanics that make this mission practical. Going this close to the sun had been considered for decades, but the mission designs that were always come up with just really couldn't practically be executed. And Andy made sort of the, the intellectual breakthrough to figure out how to do this so that it could be done. And then that is why it seemed appropriate to dedicate the mission to him. But it, it could be a technician, it could be an engineer, it could be anyone who is truly important to that particular mission we're launching at that time. Yeah. Well, and you know, I'm glad you mentioned the trajectory because that's something I wanted to touch on too, is a lot of times it's harder to launch to the sun than it is to the outer planets. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is actually much harder to get into the sun than it is to, say, get out to Pluto. So our previous speed record was New Horizons, mm -hmm. you know, 36,000 miles per hour when it left Earth. This one was even faster, 43,000 miles per hour leaving Earth. And after its seven Venusian flybys, fastest human object ever in the universe at 430,000 miles an hour, an incomprehensible speed. Why is it hard to get to the sun? Because we're already orbiting the sun. So I think intuitively people would imagine, well, you know, the sun, it's this giant gravity well and you'll just fall into it. But you and I are orbiting the sun right now at 67,000 miles per hour. And if we're going to get any closer to the sun, we have to take that velocity yeah. back out and change the energy of our orbit to get there. That's why it's so hard. And this is a really neat mission because it involves some pretty clever orbital mechanics. So we sent that spacecraft on its way. It'll have its first close encounter with the sun, its first perihelion. It'll still be pretty far out in November. And then about every third orbit around the sun, it's going to have a near interaction with Venus that will tighten it up and pull that perihelion, pull that minimum orbit distance from the sun closer and closer and closer until it's less than 4 million miles from the surface of the sun, literally flying through the corona. No spacecraft has ever done that. And we expect to get groundbreaking science from yeah. that. Well, I mean, the corona, like if you've seen an eclipse before, you can see the sun's corona from that. So that's just wild to think that it's going to be flying through that. Imagine. And it's a, it's a million degrees, right? Yeah. One of the great sort of mysteries about the sun that will hopefully be resolved by this mission is why is the surface of the sun, which is closer to the core where the heat is coming from, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but the corona is a million degrees. Obviously, there's theories about that, but this spacecraft will probably give the definitive answer. 
that sounds incredible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's humbling to think how little we still know about the star that we orbit around. So being able to be involved with this mission, I'm sure that's probably one of the highlights for you. It is. It's very exciting. You know, everybody here loves rockets. I really love rockets. But what really gets us up in the morning is being connected to the missions that we get to support. And this mission was special in, in a whole other way in that regard in that, that uh, Dr. Parker was there with us. Yeah. He did the research that predicted the, the existence of solar wind and published way back in 1958 and took a lot of criticism. I think people thought he was a kook at the time. And of course, later, a few years later, it was discovered that he was absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Space is not an empty vacuum. There's all sorts of things happening in space. And now we get to 60 years later, actually fly a mission to the sun and get all of the answers that go with that original research. And he was there to see it, 91 years old. It was really cool. Very fulfilling, I'm sure, for him. Mm-hmm. Well, Tori, it has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and we hope to have you on again soon. Oh, it was my pleasure. Love to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. Visit Cosmo.org for more information about the museum. And if you could, leave us a review on iTunes. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix.